0: section twenty three of a history of our own times volume four by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter fifty seven the irish church part one the irish peasant to his mistress is the name of one of moore's finest songs the irish peasant tells his mistress of his undying fidelity to her through grief and through danger Her smile has cheered his way. The darker our fortunes, the purer thy bright love burned. It turned shame into glory, fear into zeal. Slave as he was with her to guide him, he felt free. She had a rival, and the rival was honored, while thou wert mocked and scorned. The rival wore a crown of gold. The other's brows were girt with thorns. The rival wooed him to temples, while the loved one lay hid in caves her friends were all masters while thine alas are slaves yet he declares cold in the earth at thy feet i would rather be than wed one i love not or turn one thought from thee the reader already understands the meaning of this poetic allegory if he failed to appreciate its feeling it would be hardly possible for him to understand the modern history of ireland The Irish peasant's mistress is the Catholic Church. The rival is the state church set up by English authority. The worshippers in the Catholic faith had long to lie hid in caves while the followers of the state church worshipped in temples. The Irish peasant remained through centuries of persecution devotedly faithful to the Catholic Church. Nothing could win or wean him from it. The Irish population of Ireland, there is the meaning in the words were made apparently by nature for catholic faith hardly any influence on earth could make the genuine celtic irishman a materialist or what is called in france a voltairian for him as for schiller's immortal heroine the kingdom of the spirits is easily opened half his thoughts half his life belong to a world other than the material world around him the supernatural becomes almost natural for him. The streams, the valleys, the hills of his native country, are peopled by mystic forms and melancholy legends, which are all but living things for him. Even the railway has not banished from the land his familiar fancies and dreams. The good people still linger around the roths and glens. The banshee even yet laments in dirge-like wailings, The death of the representative of each ancient house. The very superstitions of the Irish peasant take a devotional form. They are never degrading. His piety is not merely sincere, it is even practical. It sustains him through many hard trials and enables him to bear in cheerful patience a lifelong trouble. He praises God for everything, not as an act of mere devotional formality, but as by instinct. The praise naturally rising to his lips. Old men and women in Ireland, who seem to the observer to have lived lives of nothing but privation and suffering, are heard to murmur, with their latest breath, the fervent declaration that the Lord was good to them always. Assuredly, this genuine piety does not always prevent the wild Celtic nature from breaking forth into fierce excesses. Stormy outbursts of passion, gusts of savage revenge too often sweep away the soul of the irish peasant from the quiet moorings in which his natural piety and the teachings of his church would hold it but deep down in his nature is that faith in the other world and its visible connection and intercourse with this his reverence for the teaching which shows him a clear title to immortality for this very reason when the irish peasant throws off altogether the guidance of religion he is apt to rush into worse extravagances and excesses than most other men. He is not made to be a rationalist, he is made to be a believer. The Irishman was bound by ties of indescribable strength and complication to his own church. It was the teacher of that faith which especially commended itself to his nature and his temperament. It was made to be the symbol and the synonym of patriotism and nationality. Centuries of the cruel, futile attempt to force another religion on him in the name of his English conquerors had made him regard any effort to change his faith, even by argument, as the attempt of a spy to persuade a soldier to forsake his flag. To abandon the Catholic Church was for the Irishman not merely to renounce his religion, but to betray his country. It seemed to him that he could not become a Protestant. Without also becoming a renegade to the national cause, the state church set up in Ireland was to him a symbol of oppression. It was Gessler's hat stuck up in the marketplace. Only a slave would bow down to it. It was idle to tell him of the free spirit of Protestantism. Protestantism stood represented for him by the authority which had oppressed his fellow countrymen and fellow Catholics for generations which had hunted men to the caves and the mountains for being catholic, and had hanged and disembowelled them for being Irish. Almost every page of the history of the two countries was read with a different interpretation by the Irishman and the Englishman. To the English student, Spencer was a patriot as well as a poet. To the Irish scholar, he was the bitterest and most unthinking enemy of Ireland. To the Englishman of modern days, cromwell was a great statesman and a patriot the irishman thought of him only as the remorseless oppressor of ireland and the author of the massacre of drogheda the englishman hated james the second because he fought against england at the boyne the irishman despised him because he gave up the fight so soon chesterfield was to an englishman a fribble and a fop he was to Irishmen of education the one english lord lieutenant who ever seemed to have any comprehension of the real needs of ireland fox was denounced in england and adored in ireland because he made himself the champion of the principle of governing ireland according to irish ideas one of byron's chief offences in the eyes of english conservatives was that his enthusiasm for ireland was almost equal to his enthusiasm for greece again and again in every generation the object of admiration to englishmen was the object of distrust or dislike or both to all irishmen who professed to have in them anything of the sentiment of nationality all this feeling of antagonism was undoubtedly strengthened and sharpened by the existence of the state church there was not one rational word to be said on principle for the maintenance of such an institution sidney smith said in his humorous way there is no abuse like it in all europe in all asia in all the discovered parts of africa and in all we have heard of timbuktu no foreign statesman probably ever admired english institutions more than count cavour did yet cavour wrote that the state church in ireland remains to the catholics a representative of the cause of their miseries a sign of defeat and oppression it exasperates their sufferings and makes their humiliation more keenly felt. Every argument in favour of the State Church in England was an argument against the State Church in Ireland. The English Church as an institution is defended on the ground that it represents the religious convictions of the great majority of the English people, and that it is qualified to take welcome charge of those who would otherwise be left without any religious care or teaching in England the catholics in ireland were to all other denominations together as five to one the state church represented only a small proportion of a very small minority there was not the slightest pretext for affecting to believe that it could become the mother and the guardian of orphans and waifs among the irish people in many places the protestant clergymen preached to a dozen listeners in some places he thought himself lucky when he could get half a dozen there were places with a protestant clergyman and a protestant church and absolutely no protestant worshippers there had not of late years been much positive hostility to the state church among the irish people since the abolition of the system of tithes since the dues of the parson were no longer collected by an armed military force with occasional accompaniment of bloodshed the bitterness of the popular feeling had very much mitigated. The Irish people grew to be almost indifferent on the subject. With Henry II, says Sidney Smith, came in tithes, to which in all probability about one million of lives may have been sacrificed in Ireland. All that was changed at last. As long as the clergyman was content to live quietly and mind his own flock, where he had any to mind his Catholic neighbors were not disposed to trouble themselves much about him. If, indeed, he attempted to do that which, by all strict logical reasoning, he must have regarded himself as appointed to do, if he attempted any work of conversion, then he aroused such a storm of anger that he generally found it prudent to withdraw from the odious and hopeless enterprise. If he was a sensible man, he was usually content to minister to his own people and meddle no further with others. In the large towns he generally had his considerable congregation and was busy enough. In some of the country places of the South and West he preached every Sunday to his little flock of five or six, while the congregation of the Catholic chapel, a short distance off, were covering great part of the hillside around the chapel door, because their numbers were many times too great to allow them to find room within the building itself sidney smith has described in a few words the condition of things as it existed in this time on an irish sabbath the bell of a neat parish church often summons to church only the parson and an occasional conforming clerk while two hundred yards off a thousand catholics are huddled together in a miserable hovel and pelted by all the storms of heaven in days nearer to our own the miserable hovel had for the most part given place to a large and handsome church, in many places to a vast and stately cathedral. Nothing could be more remarkable than the manner in which the voluntary offerings of the Irish Catholics covered the face of the country with churches dedicated to the uses of their faith. Often the contributions came in liberal measure from Irishmen settled in far-off countries who were not likely ever again to see their native fields. Irish Catholic priests crossed the Atlantic, crossed even the Pacific, to ask for help to maintain their churches, and there came from Quebec and Ontario, from New York, New Orleans and Chicago, from Melbourne and Sydney, from Tasmania and New Zealand, the money which put up churches and spires on the Irish mountainsides. The proportion between the Protestants and the Catholics began to tell more and more disadvantageously for the State Church as years went on of late the influx of the catholic working population into the northern province threatens to overthrow the supremacy of protestantism in protestantism's own stronghold it has often been said that if england had not persecuted the catholics if she had not thrust her state church on them under circumstances which made it an insolent badge of conquest the irish people might have been gradually won over to the religion of england to us nothing seems more unlikely than any such change the irish people we are convinced would under any circumstances whatever have remained faithful to the catholic church as we have already endeavoured to show it is the church which seems specially appointed to be the guide of their feelings and their nature but it is certain that if there had been no persecution and no state church the feelings of the Irish people toward England would have been very different from what they actually are, even at this day. There would have been no rebellion of 1798. There would have been no hatred of Protestant to Catholic, Catholic to Protestant. All this is obvious. Everyone says as much now. But there is another view of the question. There is another harmful effect of the State Church and its surroundings, which is not so often considered, nor so commonly admitted, this is the indirect harm which was done by the setting up in ireland of a british party to employ a phrase once familiar in politics a party supposed to represent the interests of the english government and indeed to be as it was commonly called the protestant garrison in ireland naturally the government always acted on the advice of that party and as a matter of course they were frequently deceived the british party had no way of getting at the real feelings of the irish people they were among them but not of them they kept on continually assuring the government that there was no real cause of dissatisfaction in ireland that the objection to this or that odious institution or measure came only from a few agitators and not from the whole population it will not be forgotten that down to the very outbreak of the american war of independence there were the remnants of a british party in the northern states who assured the english government that there was no real dissatisfaction among the american colonists and no idea whatever of severing the connection with england the same sort of counsel was given the same fatal service was rendered on almost all important occasions by the british party in ireland it was probably from observing this condition of things that Mr. Gladstone came to the conclusion that the Fenian outbreak, the Manchester Rescue, and the Clerkenwell explosion furnished a proper opportunity for a new system of legislation in Ireland. Few actions on the part of a public man have been more persistently misrepresented, or more obstinately misunderstood, than the course taken by Mr. Gladstone. It has been constantly asserted that he declared himself impelled to propose new legislation for Ireland by the violence of the Fenian enterprises, and that he thus held out a premium to political agitation of the most audacious kind by offering an assurance to the agitator that if he would only be daring and lawless enough, he might have full gratification of his demands. Yet Mr. Gladstone's meaning was surely plain— he saw that the one great difficulty in the way of substantial legislation for Irish grievances had always been found in the fact that the English Parliament and public did not believe in the reality of the grievance. Englishmen put aside every claim made on behalf of Ireland with the assurance that the Irish people were entirely indifferent on the subject, that the Irish people felt no grievance, and therefore had not complained of any. The Fenian movement was in Mr. Gladstone's eyes the most substantial refutation of this comfortable belief. The most easy going and self complacent Philistine could not feel satisfied that there was no grievance pressing on the minds of the Irish people when he found rebellion going on under his very eyes and Fenian devotees braving death for their cause and its captains in his very streets. Mr. Gladstone was right one of the sad defects of our parliamentary system is that no remedy is likely to be tried for any evil until the evil has made its presence felt in some startling way the clerkenwell explosion was but one illustration of a common condition of things we seldom have any political reform without a previous explosion on march sixteenth eighteen sixty eight a remarkable debate took place in the house of commons it had for its subject the condition of ireland and it was introduced by a series of resolutions which mr john francis maguire an irish member proposed mr maguire was a man of high character and great ability and earnestness he was a newspaper proprietor and an author he knew ireland well but he also knew england and the temper of the english people he was ardent in his national sympathies but he was opposed to any movement of a seditious or a violent character he had more than once risked his popularity among his countrymen by the resolute stand which he made against any agitation that tended toward rebellion mr maguire always held that the geographical situation of england and ireland rendered a separation of the two countries impossible he had often expressed his belief that even in the event of a war between england and some foreign state the American Republic, for instance, and even in the event of England's losing temporary possession of Ireland, one of the conditions of peace which the foreign power would most freely accept would be the handing back of Ireland to Great Britain. To his mind, then, separation was a result not to be seriously thought of. But he accepted cordially the saying of Grattan that if the ocean forbade separation, the sea denied union he was in favour of a domestic legislature for ireland and he was convinced that such a measure would be found the means of establishing a true and genial union of feeling a friendly partnership between the two countries mr maguire was looked on with respect and confidence by all parties in england as well as in his own country even the fenians whose schemes he condemned as he had condemned the young ireland movement of eighteen forty eight were willing to admit his honesty and his courage for they found that there was no stauncher advocate in parliament for a generous dealing with the fenian prisoners a speaker of remarkable power and earnestness although occasionally too vehement of words and gesture he was always listened to with attention in the house of commons it was well known that he had declined tenders of office from both of the great english parties and it was known too that he had done this at a time when his personal interests made his refusal a considerable sacrifice. When, therefore, he invited the attention of the House of Commons to the condition of Ireland, the House knew that it was likely to have a fair and a trustworthy exposition of the subject. In the course of his speech, Mr. Maguire laid great stress upon the evil effect wrought upon Ireland by the existence of the Irish Church. He described it as a scandalous and monstrous anomaly. During the debate, Lord Mayo, then Irish Secretary, made a speech in which he threw out some hint about a policy of equalizing all religious denominations in Ireland without sacrificing the Irish Church. He talked in a mysterious way of leveling up and not leveling down. It has never since been known for certain whether he was giving a hint of a scheme actually in the mind of the government, whether he was speaking as one set up to feel his way into the opinion of the House of Commons and the public or whether he was only following out some sudden and irresponsible speculations of his own the words however produced a great effect on the house of commons it became evident at once that the question of the irish church was making itself at last a subject for the practical politician mr bright in the course of the debate strongly denounced the irish establishment and enjoined the government and all the great English parties to rise to the occasion and resolve to deal in some serious way with the condition of Ireland. Difficulties of the gravest nature he fully admitted were yet in the way, but he reminded the house in tones of solemn and penetrating earnestness that to the upright there ariseth light in the darkness. But it was on the fourth night of the debate that the importance of the occasion became fully manifest, then it was that Mr. Gladstone spoke and declared that in his opinion the time had come when the Irish church as a state institution must cease to exist. Then every man on the house knew that the end was near. Mr. Maguire withdrew his resolutions. The cause he had to serve was now in the hands of one who, though not surely more earnest for its success, had incomparably greater power to serve it. The Protestant garrison in Ireland was doomed. There was probably not a single Englishman capable of forming an opinion who did not know that from the moment when Mr. Gladstone made his declaration, the fall of the Irish State Church had become merely a question of time. Men only waited to see how Mr. Gladstone would proceed to procure its fall. End of Section 23